Today we come to the book of Zechariah. It's a very difficult book. And after the book of Haggai, which is the previous book, short, simple, this book is a direct contrast. Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries. Haggai had a very short prophecy, prophetic ministry in post-exile Jerusalem. His ministry ended just before he ended, Zechariah came on the scene. In effect, Zechariah replaced him. And Zechariah's prophecy is more on the future, while Haggai was more about the present. Come on, let's build the temple. Let's finish this temple. So in Zechariah, there's a lot of poetry and a lot of apocalyptic visions. What do you mean by that? Visions that speak of the future. Now God has to use apocalyptic or um, the word apocalyptic is to show mysteries that you we humanly will not know unless God reveals it to us. Now, why does God need to do that? You saw many of these apocalyptic visions in Zechariah because God wants to show the future. A future we have never seen. We have no concept of. It's almost like me, if I had to go back 10,000 years, 8,000 years to the first person in the Garden of Eden and tell him, you know what? Let me tell you about the year AD 2000. We use cell phones and you say, what's that? Oh, just a little thing we carry and then we can talk to people anywhere we like. Uh, what does that mean? So I have to think of some way I can use something he can conceptualize to explain the cell phone. Oh, it was still a laptop. I say, well, you know, I work every day on a box. They say, you work on a box? Uh, okay. Um, there's sort of pictures on the screen and then I press a key. What's the key? You know, so I have to use some kind of thing that he understands. And that's very, very difficult. So God uses these images that people of Zechariah's time could understand, and people like us can understand, to some extent, of a future we have never seen. You know, the eternal kingdom is going to be so glorious. We think we know it. We think it's like an improvement of what we have now, but it's going to boggle our mind, you know? Just like a Stone Age man thinks a cell phone is just an improvement of shouting from here to there, communicating by screaming, right? No, 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 it's much, it's very different. You explain to him, you say, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. It cannot be that different, right? So this is why we have all these images. And honestly, it's very hard to picture that at this time. But when a Stone Age man goes in the time tunnel and comes to 82,000, say, now I know what you're talking about. And one day we're going to be at the other side of, of uh, time and look back and say, boy, I could never figure that out when I read Zechariah, but it's so clear now. All right. So this is uh, how you have to understand this book. So it's kind of mysterious and difficult to understand. Now, I would suggest you listen to uh, audio Bible version of the message. It helps you get the bigger picture rather than get stuck first and then after that you can choose to read it anywhere okay now so Zechariah was basically a priest 
right, whom God used post-exile Jerusalem. Now this book is divided really into two parts, 14 chapters. The first eight chapters speak more of the present. In Jerusalem at the time, when I say present, I mean Jerusalem. Chapter 9 to 14 speaks of the glorious eternal kingdom. Most, most of it is about the coming kingdom. And it's, that's the hard part that you, all right? I'm not saying the first part's easy, but the second part's even harder. All right, so let's look at the chapter 1. We, we have to run through very fast because there are 14 chapters. So it's no more like doing Haggai, going verse by verse. Chapter 1, we start with an introduction. Right from verse 1 to verse 6 in chapter 1. Take your notes, take a pad and take notes so when you read it, it helps you. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 6, introduction, scolding them, rebuking them. Don't be like your ancestors, right? They were warned, they were warned. Prophets came after prophets, they were so stubborn, they never learned anything, and they had to go to exile. So that's basically the introduction. And then comes Zechariah's first of eight visions. All right, in this first part of his book, first of eight visions. The first vision is about four horsemen. That's in chapter 1, verse 7 to 17. Four horsemen. Now, these four horsemen, who, what are they doing? Basically, they are news reporters. They are sent to the four corners of the world to report the condition of the world. And they came back and say, good. The world is at peace, okay? So, Zechariah saw the world at peace. He was telling the people, he was prophesying to the world is at peace. Okay, in those days, you don't have news reports. So, this is like, he, he says, the four horsemen went out and checked around. It's good. The world's good shape, right? This is true because Cyrus had taken, uh, conquered Babylon, which was like the most brutal, cruel of all. Assyria was bad. Babylon's worse. Cyrus was good. Cyrus was a peaceful king, and so there was peace everywhere in his in the Persian kingdom, which was vast, right? And so, basically, Zechariah is telling them, there's peace, build, 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 please continue building. Zechariah was also part of Haggai's team to ask them to build. Time of peace, build. Time of war, cannot build, right? So the four horsemen are news reporters. Okay, today, we won't, uh, they won't be riding on horses, right? They will be... Uh, checking on their cell phones how the condition is in the world. Then chapter 1, verse 18 to 21, as another vision he sees, right? He sees visions, okay? He's at night flying down. He's awake, but God shows him this telegraphic, this uh, tele, like a television in his brain. Now he sees four horns, oh, four horns sticking on the ground. And what are horns? Horns are always picture of might, of power of kings, usually military power and then he sees four craftsmen come and literally yank the horns out and dehorn it as it were take away the horns horns are and any animal with a horn is very dangerous he could pierce you and kill you whether it's a cow or a rhinoceros or whatever all right a goat now so when taking when it, these four craftsmen took away the horns means there's no more killer armies coming around Peace again. So it's a repeat message of peace. In other words, time to build, guys. Time to build. Grab this opportunity. Windows of peace in the world are very rare. Almost all the time there is war. Okay, We are blessed. I'm very blessed to have never seen war. I was born just 
after the Second World War, right? Now, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, he sees another vision. This is vision number 3. He sees a man with a measuring line. Now, basically, that's a surveyor, right? In those days, surveyors that go with electronic equipment, they use a measuring line. What does a surveyor's job do? He basically goes in to do planning first, how to expand the city wall, etc. Always a surveyor sent in before building projects start. So basically, this is telling them to expand the walls of Jerusalem, all right? Why to expand the walls of Jerusalem? Because Jews, he wanted to encourage Jews to come back from Babylon. Only a handful, 50,000 came back out of the huge number that were in Babylon. So he says, we're going to expand the walls. This is going to be a nice big city. It's a good place. Come on back here. All right. I think that's basically what he's trying to say. But then later he says, you know, even if we expand the walls, see Jerusalem's on a hill. You cannot expand it very much. It's a, you know, it's at the limits. This geography is on the plane. And so he said that one day, even if we cannot expand the walls big enough, God will be our wall. Let's look at uh, Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 5. Okay, let's look at verse 5. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So God says, don't worry about size. Even when we outgrow the walls of Jerusalem, however much we expand it, we, I will be your wall, right? And verse 8, let's read Verse 8 is a very familiar verse that is commonly used by pastors. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, right? The apple of your eye is your iris. Anything touches your iris, even a dust speck, Straight away, you will flick it off, all right? You will never allow anybody to touch the apple in your eye. Basically, God is saying, I'll never allow anyone to touch my people again, all right? Enough. I'm going to protect my people. They are, my people are precious to me. That's basically what God is saying. I'm a father. I take care of my kids well. All right, so that's chapter 2, the measuring line. Then he sees another vision in chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 10. In verses 1 to 10, it speaks of Joshua. Joshua is the high priest. It's a very, very strange scene. Okay, you see a scene here of Satan coming and accusing Joshua. You're a dirty fellow. How can you be the high priest? And it shows Zechariah saw he was really dirty garments, right? And, you know, Satan is always an accuser, right? Remember? He accused Job. He said, you think Job really liked you, are God? He doesn't. But you bless him so he, he likes you, up. You take away everything that's seen, right? So Satan's job is to accuse. He's an accuser of the brethren, right? The word Satan means adversary. He's the adversary of us, always against us, right? And so, it's very interesting, you know, Satan hardly appears in the Old Testament. If you check through evidence of Satan in the Garden of Eden as a serpent, still concealed, hiding, right? 
he tempted, it says, David to do a census in the Chronicles. And in Job, we see him again. In the entire Old Testament, I actually only see Satan three times. But he's there all the time. All right? What have you learned from that? Satan's always behind the scenes. Now, when Jesus came to the ministry, and during Jesus' ministry, wow, we see Satan everywhere. Frantic, panicking, right? Causing oppressions and, and you know, all kinds of things. But throughout the Bible, most of the time, Satan is behind the scenes, deceiving us through agents, deceiving us through media. He's the great deceiver. You don't know he exists, but he's everywhere, everywhere, including in the church, including in the Bible seminaries, right? That's the truth, deceiving us. And we think we're so smart, we won't be deceived. He is the great deceiver. Anyway, Satan accuses, and then we see the very strange scene. God says, all right, I'll clean up. Joshua, give him new clothes, all right? Joshua was a high priest. Now, he represented the people of Israel. And the Israelites, honestly, had gone to idolatry, every kind of thing. And the filth of Israel was huge, right? That idolatry, immorality, and injustice was huge. And so God says, you, you all dare to, I mean, Satan says, you dare to stand and as if you are such a holy guy. You guys, Israel stinks, man. All right. So we see here in uh, chapter 3 and verse 9. Very interesting. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 9. I'm sorry I have to just jump. All right. Verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave his inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I think this speaks of when Christ went on the cross, paid for our sins. I think that's what it means, right? Anyway, that was the day, all right? Christ settled mankind's sins, including Israel's. Okay, so that's chapter 3, the cleansing of Joshua. You're saying, Pastor, you're confusing us. Yeah, I'm also confused. I'm just trying to help you best I can. A lot of things here we don't see clearly. We don't, right? Some hints and some peeps we can see like, okay, Jesus did wash us of our sins. That is true. Yes, we are the apple of his eye. He does protect us. All right. Now, chapter four speaks of a golden. Then he sees another vision, a golden lampstand, menorah, Jewish lampstand, symbol of Israel. And then he sees, okay, I won't describe the whole scene, but he sees the, like a reservoir of olive oil that keeps filling this lampstand. All right, the priest in the temple in those days had to go and fill, put olive oil to make sure the lights were always on. It was, a, it was lighted by olive oil, but this seems to have a reservoir that keeps filling the lamp. All right. And every time olive oil is mentioned, or not every time, most times, it symbolizes the Holy Spirit. So it's just saying one day the Holy Spirit will come in full measure to all of us. We will always be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I believe that's what it means. Okay. Now look at verse 
6, okay, in chapter uh, 4, and let's look at verse 6, see. Then said he to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Very commonly used, right? If I preach it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Basically, I think in that present context where Zechariah was talking to the people, he said, we are going to build this temple not with our power. We don't have any. Or might, we don't have any. But by God's help, we will build the temple. So, you see, when Zechariah is talking, he's talking to real people, really with problems. And he's also talking to us in the future, all right? So that's how prophets work. They didn't just go and talk about the future. They were actually dealing with a present problem. But as they dealt with a present problem, there were, there were messages for us of the future. Okay? That's why it's a double fulfillment, so to speak. They didn't speak in a vacuum. They didn't sit in a room and there's no audience, no present audience that just talk to us. Oh, one day it will be like this. One day the Holy Spirit will come on the day of Pentecost. No, all right? They are actually talking to real people struggling. Now, then after that comes chapter 5, another strange vision. This guy is lying in his bed and now he sees a flying scroll. In, you know, a scroll, they used to read things in a scroll. This scroll is massive. Now, the more scrolls you can hold and read. This scroll is almost 10 meters by 5 meters. It's flying in the air. And on this scroll, there are curses against liars and stealers or thieves. And God is saying that as this scroll flies around, whenever there is a thief or a liar in any house, the scroll will go in and work, finish it off, finish the house off, including the guy. I don't know what it means, but I think it speaks of a future kingdom where we don't need to worry about liars and thieves. You know, one of our biggest problems in this world is we trust nobody, not even our pastors. There are thieves among them and liars among them. You can't trust anyone on earth. That's the truth. I mean, even marriages, they can't trust their husband or their wife. There's so much infidelity. Okay? Parents can't even trust their kids will take care of them when they're old. You trust nobody, right? But one day, in that eternal kingdom, it's gone. You can actually live in peace that the guy next to you is not going to rip you off and deceive you and con you, all right? Wow, we had never thought about it. But to me, when I see this flying scroll, wow, that'd be a nice day. I can actually talk to people, actually believe what they say at face value. I don't know say, what's the motive behind this, all right? So, and then it also shows in chapter 5 another very strange uh, uh, vision. In chapter 5, verse 5 to 11, he sees a basket. You know, they used to take these big baskets for gathering agricultural crops if you throw their corn in or whatever. Big baskets, all right? Agricultural. And then, they lifted the lid of this carpet. There's a woman in there. He's like, whoa, who's this? And the woman's name is Wickedness. She is a personification. 
of sin. And when he saw it, this woman, he quickly put the lid right back on. Right? Whoa, better keep the sin inside this basket. Don't let it pop out. And then, and during this vision, he sees the basket and he sees two women coming. Now, these women are not normal women. They had stalks, wings, wings of stalk birds. And they lifted up this basket and flew it, flew off to, in the Bible, in verse, verse 10, in chapter 5, verse 10, it says, Shina. Shina is the place, another name for Babylon. Babylon was in the plains of Shina. All right? So the basket was brought to Babylon. In other words, this wickedness, all the sins were stuck in this basket, thrown in this basket, and dumped into Babylon, the place of sin. Another picture, I think, of one fine day. Sin will be history. It's a dump somewhere in this place called Babylon, place of wickedness. We will actually live in a place without sin. Now, that's unthinkable. Since Adam in the Garden of Eden, it's unthinkable. The land without sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. All right? So, that's the image of, uh, that's the vision, sorry, of the flying scroll. Okay? We thought, wow, this is getting bizarre, right? Now we have another one in chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. It's of the four chariots. Chariots are like, whoa, power. You don't, you don't stand in the way of a chariot. It's like a tank, all right? It's like a flying tank, right? And four chariots went in four directions, everywhere in the world. That's it. I don't know what it stands for. But I think it stands for God's will will be done. Finally, God will be in control. All right. I think. I'm not sure. Chapter 6, verse 9 to 15. It's not, more, not a vision. Huh? Chapter 6, verse 9, verses 9 to 15. It's not a vision. Three exiles came back from Babylon, you know, they had 50,000 had come out, many stayed back, but three guys came out and they brought silver and gold, obviously for the temple, to help build the temple. You know, people were doing well in Babylon, they felt guilty, they didn't go back, so they sent gifts and these three guys brought gold and silver. And instead of giving the temple, the gold was made into a crown and put on Joshua's head. Now oh, that's kind of weird. Joshua is not the king. Zerubbabel is. Zerubbabel is the king. Joshua was a priest. High priest. How you put a crown, make that priest a king? That's not, that's not, never happened before. Oh, it did happen once. Before. Long, long ago. Before. At Abraham's time, there was a person called Melchizedek. He was king of Salem in Genesis. King of Salem, Jerusalem. King of peace. Salem means peace. And he was also a priest. And later on, we say Jesus. Is, he was a foretype of Jesus, who is king and priest. All right? So I don't know what this story is about, but I think it was preparing people that one day the king and priest would be one and the same. Right? And that's Jesus. Since the time of Melchizedek, 
hadn't happened. Now they crowned Joshua in anticipation that in the eternal kingdom, our king is also our priest, not two separate people. It's always been two separate people in the nation of Israel, right? Whatever. I'm, I'm not, I'm not even going to be helping you anything. I'm just probably confusing you, but that's all I know, all right? I don't want to be pretend I know anything more. Now, chapter 7 speaks of something. Uh, again, it's not a vision. Chapter 7, two guys came in from Bethel, a town near Jerusalem, and these two guys came to ask advice. The people now had moved out beyond Jerusalem, People have moved to the towns around, and these people were in battle. They came and said, hey, excuse me, priest, are we supposed still to celebrate the fast that we have been celebrating to commemorate the fall of Jerusalem? You see, when the fall of Jerusalem came, the exiles always remembered that day. In fact, the synagogues still remember that day. And they would fast on the day when Jerusalem fell. So they came and said, hey, now we are back already, right? Are we supposed, the temple is being built, right? Are we supposed to fast anymore? And then they got a lecture, not on whether to fast or not to fast. They got a lecture on what's the meaning of a fast. The lecture was, you guys think a fast is something you just don't eat, is it? You think it's just some religious ritual? You know, today, there are many Christians who fast, right? They have the day of Lent or whatever, I don't know. In some churches, is that they actually fast. And there are many religions that just fast. And they think fasting means don't eat. And they got a lecture and said, you know, the purpose of a fast is not that you stop eating. But the purpose of a fast, the goal of a fast, is that not you put away food, you put away sin in your lives. That's the purpose of a fast. Well, I mean, it's not for diet, for goodness sake. You don't take a fast so you can cleanse your system. There's some silly Christians who teach that. All right? As if fasting is some nutritional thing. No, the purpose of a fast is to remind yourself. We love food. And we love sin. Come, put away food. But more importantly, put away sin. You say, PC, are you coming up with some kind of, uh, uh, of theory of your own? No, 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 please. All right. Let's look at chapter 7 and verse, verses 8 and 10. All right. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 10. Okay. This is uh, the passage on the fast. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Right? You see, this whole chapter is about fasting. And he got a lecture and said, I tell you what you should do. Don't worry about how much food you put away. Don't talk about what you can eat, what you can eat, what time you eat, can eat, what time you cannot eat. Let me tell you what you should do. These are what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't be uncruel to widows. You should be kind. Get it? All right? 
So basically, a fast was not a nutritional dietary observation, a religious observation. It was for us to put away things that are so much a part of our life that we love so much. And I tell you, when you read the Old Testament, there's very little about studying, studying, studying God's Word. Very little. It's always about a right life, a right life, a right. What makes God happy is not we know how to study and memorize verses. No. It's not how often we go and bring our sacrifices, so to speak, to our, to our church. But it's how we live every day. Alright? So please read verse 8 and 10, okay? Let me read it again. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, foreigner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That's Christianity. Alright? Yeah, yeah, he's a faithful Christian. He comes to church. Is he a faithful Christian being kind to people in his office? Is she a faithful Christian who takes care of the maid in a house? Is she a faithful Christian who talks to the cleaner downstairs? That's Christianity, folks, right? I'm sorry to disrupt a lot of people who say PC is anti-scholarly against Bible study. No, I'm not against Bible study. I'm against Bible study that doesn't produce Christianity, all right? And true Christ-like behavior. All right, number eight, chapter eight. Peace, the whole chapter eight is about peace and prosperity of Jerusalem. And that's all I'm gonna say about it. You can read it, it's like, well, some of it is shows the immediate future of this Jerusalem to that walls would be better. But most of it I think is about the new Jerusalem, the eternal city. Alright. Okay, so first chapter one to chapter eight, as I said, was about the now. Zechariah was addressing, talking to them about their situation. Alright. Now when we come to chapter nine to fourteen, it is about the distant future, mostly. Okay? And so, in chapter 9 to 14, 9 to 11 is focusing more on the people in Israel. And then 12 to 14 is talking about the world, how the world will attack Jerusalem, how the world will come into Jerusalem, how Jerusalem, the, the, all the Gentiles will see Jerusalem as the capital of the world, etc. Right? So, chapter 9 to 14 is about the future. So let's look. This is going to be very hard and I'm not even going to try to attempt to explain it too much. Chapter 9, verse 1 to 8 says, God's enemies, right? Philistines and all these people will never trouble you again. This probably talks of the future because right now there's still a lot of uh, problems. Chapter 9, verse 10. Let's read chapter 9. Verse 10, okay? <clears throat> Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Alright? Speaks of the first coming of Jesus. He really came on a donkey into Jerusalem. That's kind of disappointing to the Jews when Jesus came on a donkey. They said, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That, that cry was, deliver us, Lord. Deliver us from the Romans. They're terrible people. We are, we are oppressed people. But he came on a donkey. When you come on a donkey, you don't come on a war mission. You come on a peace mission. Second coming of Jesus. Second coming. He's coming on a horse. That's war. Right? Now the Jews didn't like this verse. In fact, they ignored it. When Jesus came on a donkey, they were disappointed. A few days later, they shouted, Crucify him! He is not the Messiah. But if they had remembered Zechariah, they said, He is the Messiah. He came. You see, they always forgot. They didn't know. I'm sorry, they didn't forget. They didn't know Jesus would come twice. First time as a humble servant king. Second time as a conquering king. God revealed both. That's in Zechariah. He revealed the first. But they didn't. You like to see what you like to see. You hear what you want to hear. That's true. Even in a sermon. Every time you listen to a sermon, what you like, you keep. What you don't like, you mentally ignore. Or you look at the person next to you, uh, yeah, she needs it. Alright? So, here we have these people who are told clearly, your king will come humble, peaceful. Didn't get it. Didn't get it. Alright? Now, that's chapter 9. And then, uh, chapter 9, the last part of chapter 9 is about the mighty king coming and conquering his enemies. So we see actually the humble king, first time, second time, the mighty king, all blended together as if it's one coming. That's a problem. Prophets couldn't see the time scale between two mountains. Right? When they saw Jesus coming, they saw his first coming, they saw his second coming as if they were one. As I taught you, that's called a prophetic mountain view, standing far away, seeing a lower mountain and a higher mountain and assuming in your telescopic view, it's one mountain, not realizing behind the low mountain is a huge valley of thousands of years, all right? So here we have chapter 10, I'm going to jump through. It speaks of the regathering of the Jews. There, were, there is now a Jewish diaspora. Jews are everywhere. 1948, there was a beginning of a gathering of Jews. The nation reappeared. But not yet. Still, most Jews are outside. I would say 90 over percent of all Jews live outside of the nation of Israel. But chapter 10 says they will all come home one day. Okay? And chapter 11, verse 1 to 3, speaks of the deforestation of surrounding nations. I think it shows the contrast between the surrounding nations and Jerusalem. And chapter 4 to 17, repeat that, huh? chapter 11, verses 4 to 17, verses 4 to 17, speaks of worthless 
shepherds. Okay, let's look at chapter 11, verse 17. I'm sorry I'm running through it top speed, and I'll tell you why at the end of it all. And you say, PC, I don't quite understand you. I'm quite lost. It's okay. Don't worry about it. All right, let's look at chapter 11, verse 17. Woe! Woe means curse, eh? To my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. What is terrible, man? That's brutal. Let his left, let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Who does God hate? Shepherds. Who are shepherds? Pastors. Worthless pastors. I don't know what they're doing there. Plenty of them around. Worthless. They may not even be bad or evil. <laughs> it's very different, you know. Evil pastors. Fakes. Wolves in sheep's clothing. But they're worthless shepherds. I don't know what they do. They don't warn. They don't teach. They don't comfort. They just do a job. Right? Okay? Get a salary. Paid people. All right. Let's move on. And so, in chapter 12, speaks of an invading army. Is this the great battle of the last days? It looks like it. I don't know. It looks like it. And then, in this battle, when Israel is being attacked, battle of Armageddon, we see they cry out to the Lord. The Jews cry out to the Lord. So let's look at chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. You know, the Jews are going to cry so much on that day when they realize the one they have crucified, the one they have rejected for 2,000 years is their Messiah. They're going to cry. Oh no. Oh no. We wasted 2,000 years. We rejected him for 2,000 years. And he is our Messiah. He's saving us now in this battle. The one on the white horse is the one we pierced. Whoa! Can you imagine the howling and wailing when they saw that the one they pierced is the one who has loved them for 2,000 years and has come back to save them in spite of 2,000 years of rejection. All right, chapter 13, we see another group of people. He hates the prophets, right? Let's look at chapter 13, verse 2. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land 
so that they shall be remembered no more. As also are removed from the land of prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. If anyone again prophesies, his father and mother of a boy will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. His father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. That's how much hated he prophecy the prophets will be. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. Prophets used to wear a hairy cloak, right? But he will say, I, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil. For a man saw me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I receive in the house of my friends. Prophets on that day will deny they were even prophets. Their parents will say, no, no, that's not my son. You are a father of a prophet. No, 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 that's not my son. I'm ashamed of him, right? Oh, who are the worst enemies of God's people? The Babylonians? Assyrians? No. Egyptians? No. Worthless pastors shepherds and false prophets okay there come a day when all the prophets standing up and prophesying and prophesying in the name of the lord god will deal with them be careful thou shalt not take the name of the lord thy god in vain God is a jealous God. Don't ever fool around with his name. All right. And then in chapter 14, the day of the Lord. I think it's very similar to chapter 12, that battle. I don't know. Probably looks like it looks like the second coming. The great battle described in Revelation. Interesting. One part, verse 4. Chapter 14 and verse 4. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other half southward. When Christ comes, puts his foot on the mount. You see, he rose up from the Mount of Olives and he said, In like manner I'll come back. You'll see me come back. Bodily, he went up. Bodily, he will come back. His feet lands in the Mount of Olives was split in two. Some people say there is a geograph geological fault line right there. It lands there, pow, and split in two. All right? Interesting uh, thing for you to learn. Okay? Now, and then at the end of, of chapter 14, it speaks of universal worship, the whole world coming, worshiping. God. Look at the ending. It's like a strange ending. End of this whole book of prophecy about the eternal future. And look at the ending. Last verse. Let me read to you. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Full stop. Period. That's the end of Zechariah, what kind of ending is this? You know, when people don't understand that the Bible ends in Revelation, they get very disappointed at the ending of every book almost. It's like, there's no ending. 
We did a whole book study on Zechariah Pastor. We took us one year to do it and there's no ending. You know why? My friend, Zechariah is not a book. It's a, it's a chapter in a big book. <laughs> All right? It's a bizarre ending. It's about cooking food. I thought this is about the second coming. It's going to be described in Revelation. Relax. Okay? So what have we learned in this whole thing? I learned I'm very confused. Be honest with you. I've learned this. You mean God, you cannot just tell me exactly how the last days will pan out? God, are you so unable to write things clearly so that I can get it? No, I think God purposely writes it this way. I think almost Zechariah jumbles up his, his, his prophecies that you're not even sure the chronology of it. Why? Because God doesn't want us to spend all our time being experts on the future. God wants us to be faithful in the present. You know, I've talked to people who always talk about prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. Their lives never evangelize a guy. Never disciple one guy. His life, you tell him about justice, helping the poor, the widows. He looks at you, look. What are you talking about? I'm a scholar. I know all about this. I know about the last days. You know, we are supposed to live in the present days. The future is in God's hands. I know I'm going to go to heaven. People ask me, when are you going to go? I say, I'm going to go. I'll be there. What's it going to like? Wonderful. But you know, Revelation says this, says that. I say, I don't know. It's going to be so wonderful. My brain can't even figure it out. It's okay. I, I leave that to God. But today I've got enough work to do. I'm supposed to make disciples of all people. I'm supposed to help the poor, the widow, the foreigner. I've got work to do. It's clear. My present duties are clear. The future, God doesn't make it so clear to me because He doesn't want me to spend all my time debating, arguing, talking about it. You know, when you know a lot, you like to talk a lot about it. You like to show off about it. You ask me about future, I don't know. What kind of scholar are you, PC? Not much. Not much. I just want to hope that every day I live a life more like Christ. I'm not saved for heaven. I'm saved to be Christ-like. That's the goal of my salvation. To be more like Christ, shine for Him on this earth, and the future, I am very confident, is in the hands of a good God. Every day of the future is in His hands. Every moment of the present is in my hands to be responsible. That's why Zechariah is so confusing. I hope you get it. I hope you don't spend your life trying to make clear what God didn't want to make so clear. Because he didn't want us to have this huge study of the future. Because our mind, our time doesn't allow us to do too many things. I have enough problem for today, honestly, to be faithful for today. And I hope you will be faithful for today. May God bless you. Enough of the future to give you peace, not to make you proud. God bless you.